0: So, like Chris mentioned, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 16, specifically verses 9 through 20, Um, and I'm going to actually read it, and then we're going to finish up our journey, the last 32 weeks' worth of our journey through the book of Mark. So, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 says, Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, and they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, "'Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation.' Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So we are finishing up our journey through the book of Mark this evening, and I hope this has been an enjoyable journey, an enjoyable time over these last several months, especially in in the craziness that is 2020. In in everything that we've been going through, I hope we've been reminded week after week, and, and I trust this is true, that Jesus is king, that ultimately Jesus is in charge of this world. He has authority over this entire universe. And so we, we find our hopes and our satisfactions, we find our joys, we find our, our happiness not in the, the elimination of a virus, not in the end of injustice, not in, not in the election of a president of, the, of our choice, but we find our hopes and our satisfaction and our joys and our happiness ultimately in our King. Our Savior doesn't live inside of a lab developing a vaccine. He doesn't, he doesn't sit at a desk in Washington, D.C. He sits on a throne. And our king is Jesus. And we've seen in Mark, countless time after countless time, that this king is trustworthy. This king is honest. This king is caring. He's powerful. And, and what we've seen in chapters 14 and chapter 15 is he's sacrificial. He gives of himself. He gives of his life for us. And we've seen countless times again and again that this Jesus that we've seen in Mark demands a response. He demands that when people interact with him, when people engage with him, when people experience him, they have to respond in some way. And what I, what I think we'll see is that response to Jesus is one of awe, one of amazement, one of wonder. You know, last year, Elizabeth and I, we, we took a trip out west and we got to spend some time in the national parks that are out there. And, and they are some of the most beautiful sights that I have ever seen in my life. You're talking incredible mountains, cliffs, looking down into canyons, and, and you're kind of looking at this stuff and your breath is just take, taken away. The words that we would normally use to describe as beautiful, incredible, wonderful, they, they don't really do justice to what you're seeing. They, they, they pale in comparison to what's actually there. You're just amazed at what you see. You know, One of the things that I like to do when we do go on vacation, we get outside of the city and go more into rural, rural areas, into the country, is I like to go, usually at like midnight, up somewhere high and just no lights, just to look at the stars, just to look at the sky. And, and you see an expanse of the sky and there's just star after star. It just looks unbelievable. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And you're just in awe. You just can't take your eyes off of it. That's, that's the Jesus of Mark. That's what Mark's been showing us over and over again. That Jesus, you can't take your eyes off him. He's amazing. And we've seen that. We've seen as Jesus has encountered people, the things that he said, the things that he's done, people just simply walk away amazed. And so my desire for us tonight is that when we leave from here, the experience we have with Jesus tonight would have us walk away more amazed with him than we even are now. That, that's my desire. That's our hope for us tonight. And, and it's going to be a little bit creative to get there. Um, because as, as Chris was mentioning early on, the text we're looking at isn't really part of the Bible from my perspective. So it's going, to, it's going to take a little bit of creativity. We're going to spend some time in some technical things that we have to engage with. But ultimately, I think through God's word and what I believe it really says, and through the Holy Spirit and, and His work in our lives, we will walk away amazed at our King. One way we do that is really by understanding how the book of Mark truly ends. How, how does the book of Mark end? If you do have your Bibles with you, Chris mentioned this as well, if, if you have a, a recent version of the Bible, so think something like the ESV, the NIV, um, the NASB, something like that, the New Living Translation, one of those, one of those versions, there's going to be some type of a a note somewhere in the text, usually after verse 8, between verses 8 and 9. And it'll say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. There's usually brackets around it. There's usually some indication, even in the footnotes, if you look at the bottom of the page, there may even be a footnote that says something to that effect. And we have to understand all this because if if we don't know the end of the book, and these verses are truly part of it, it fundamentally changes the message of Mark. Mark. It fundamentally changes what Mark's trying to convey. And in order to understand verses 9 through 20 and the complexity of this, we're going to have to look at something called textual criticism. Um, I'm going to define that momentarily for us, but don't get too lost in the, the challenges of just what in the world is textual criticism. We're going to get into all that. Um, but unlike what Chris has mentioned a couple of times, this is not the most fascinating topic. Um, Chris thinks it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. Some of you may think it's fascinating. Um, Hopefully you do, but the nerd in me will come out this evening. I'm just preparing all of you for that. And I'll say this. If as we dig into this stuff, you're like, hey, pizza nerd, I'm a nerd too because I like this stuff. Um, And you're interested in studying more. I'm going to just show you these briefly just so you're aware. If you're like, hey, I really want to dig into this. First book, this one right here. It's like 70 pages, easy to read. Just a concise guide to everything we're going to talk about tonight. You read that, you still are like, I'm still a nerd, and I want to read this. Um, it is called New Testament Textual Criticism: A Concise Guide by David Allen Black. Then, if you're like, all right, I'm really into this. I like it. Two more books by the same guy, Paul Wagner. Textual Criticism: A Student's Guide. And journey from text to translations. These are gonna be weightier, these are gonna be heavier. There are pictures, which is great. Um, So you get some pictures, and it's pictures basically of manuscripts, of copies and copies of the Bible. Um, And then lastly, if you're like, I really am excited about digging into this subject, really excited about digging into overall the doctrine of the Word of God, Um, this is gonna be weighty, this is gonna be philosophical. Uh, the Doctrine of God's Word by John Frame. Um, one, of, one of the weightiest things i read, um, and this is going to explore way beyond textual criticism, but there is some good stuff about textual criticism. So if at the end of this anyone's like, hey, I'm interested in this, I'll start you off with a little one, get you introduced to it, and if you're still, still into it, um, we'll, go, we'll expand from there. So if anyone's interested in those books afterwards, let me know and I will gladly lend them to you. So as we get into this, we're really only going to scratch the surface, we're, really, we're, we're not going to go through all of the details of those four books, we're just going to scratch the surface of it, but we are going to get a little bit technical. So my goal this evening is, is ultimately to not, I don't want to lose you in this. I don't want to lose you in the details, I don't want to bore you with the details, but it's something we have to talk about because it's an important thing to discuss. And if, if I am really getting bored, boring, I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, I'll apologize in advance. And if it's really, really boring, I'm just going to ask Elizabeth to like, just go like this and I'll walk (laughs) off, like just end it, end it now and I will leave. I do want to say this too, and I'm glad Chris mentioned this because I think this is consistent with what we believe as a church, what I personally believe. The greatest defense for scripture is not the evidence we're going to walk through this evening. The greatest defense for scripture is scripture itself. Scripture shows itself to be reliable and authentic and inspired and perfect. So we can believe that the Bibles we have, the translations we have here today, are accurate translations of what the original authors wrote 2,000 years ago. And we can believe all of that because the Bible has said that it is authoritative, that it is true. And you say, well, that is circular. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But there's a God behind this scripture as well. There is a God that is behind the scripture and above the scripture that has preserved this scripture and is, and is outside of this scripture. He's, he has given us his communication, but he is not, our God is not the Bible. Our God is apart from the Bible, but he, is, he has given to us. He has spoken to us through his word. So, the outset. Scripture is true. Scripture is true not only because of the history and the evidence that we're going to look at, but Scripture is true because it says that it is true. Scripture is true because the Holy Spirit has breathed out the very words of God, inspired Scripture to be written by men, and that has been preserved for thousands and thousands of years. So let's start with a quick definition. Textual criticism, um, if you can see that, that's great. If it's too small, I apologize. It's the art and science of establishing the true form of a literary work. And textual criticism isn't just simply related to the Bible, although that's what we're going to be looking at now, people do textual criticism on all ancient texts, on all ancient works. Actually, the one on the left here is uh, an excerpt from Homer's Iliad, which was written in the 8th century. So you're talking about ancient texts, things that are not around anymore. Textual criticism is a part of all of that. So, so ultimately what it is, it's trying to discover what did the original authors write down. When, when Mark... And, and Peter and James and John and Paul, when they were writing their letters, when they were writing their Gospels, what did they write? In our particular case, we want to understand what did Mark write, probably around 65 AD. What did he write when he was writing his Gospel? And we, we don't often think about this because the Bible is readily available to us, is it not? With, with a click of a button, we can have a physical copy of the Bible shipped to our house in two days an amazing thing. If you don't want to wait two days, you can download an app and you have the, the, the digital copy of the Bible on your phone or on an iPad or on some type of a laptop. But this wasn't always the case. If, if you go back in time, if we go back to first century, Jesus lived in the early part of the first century. He, he died around 30 AD most likely. The scripture was written probably sometime between 40 and 90 to 95 AD, so over a 50-year time span following Jesus' death and resurrection. So all of these things, the gospels, the the epistles, all the New Testament, it was handwritten. And then the expectation was that these, these handwritten copies, these handwritten letters were passed to a church, and then within that church, others would copy down that letter and pass it to another church and it would just continue to get passed around so over centuries over over time decades and decades and decades of time people are copying the scriptures handwriting the scriptures so that today of just the new testament alone we have over 5800 copies manuscripts of the scriptures Some of those are entire copies, some of those are Matthew to Revelation, some of them are entire books, some of those are are individual pieces, they're parts of books that can be compared, and a lot of them just look like that on the right. That's an actual copy from the book of John, um, that, that that's what that would look like. So it's pieces, it's fragments of pieces. And so people, especially over the last about 500 years or so, people have dedicated their lives to not only finding these things, I mean, we're talking digging in caves, and somewhere in Israel, digging in caves and finding these things, to then compiling them, comparing them, and providing them for people who are able to translate them so that we actually have the Bible in our language. That is not that that is a very recent thing for us. You know, people didn't have scriptures in their language really until the fifteenth, sixteenth century. So it's only been within the last 500 years or so that people are actually able to read the Bible in their own language, which is an incredible thing. And as we look and, and we dig into these manuscripts, as we dig into these, these different things, manuscripts ultimately are just copies. They are, they are copies of the scriptures. What's been discovered really can be categorized into a couple of different groups. There's really four groups. So we're going to look at two primarily. And and they're categorized based on geography, based on when they were copied. The the first one we're going to look at is called the Alexandrian text. And and you can kind of get it by the name. All of these copies really originated from Northern Africa. They're from the the Egypt region. And so these copies from from Northern Africa are generally older. The oldest copy we have is actually from 125 AD. So we're talking 30 years after John the apostle wrote his books and died sometime within 90 AD. So 30 years after we have a copy of the book of John. So these are older texts. These are primarily from Northern Africa, and they generally range from 125 AD all the way through until about the, n- about the ninth century or so. So you're talking about texts that span over about 700 years. And the second group is known as the Byzantine text, or where they can be called the majority text. And it, again you can derive from the name, the majority of the 5,800 texts of the New Testament are found within this, this population. And this population of manuscripts is generally from the around the 5th or 6th century all the way through until the 17th century. So the first copy we have of the majority text is actually from about 400 years or so after Christ. 400 years or so after the Bible was written. All the way through until the 17th century. So much more time has gone by between the alexandrian texts those early ones and the majority text and if we examine these two groups of manuscripts you, you take the majority and you take the alexandrian you examine them you're going to find that there's differences within the copies there's differences that have occurred between these different manuscripts and and it's somewhat understandable though because again it's it, they're hand copied texts there's no printing press there's not even a hand press at this time for most of them. These are literally people, and they're not paid to do it early on. These Alexandrian texts weren't produced by people who were paid to do this. These were just people within the church copying, copying texts. It wasn't, it wasn't really a paid position until really the majority text, until the 8th, 9th, 10th century, that people started to get paid to actually copy Scripture. So it's somewhat understandable that you're going to have some mistakes in these copies. That's not to say, though, and, and this is where I, there's a really clear point, the original writings are perfect. The original writings of, of Mark, of Paul, of Peter, of James, there are no errors. They are completely inspired. They, are without, they were without mistake. But as people would copy the text, mistakes would happen. And, and one, of the, one of the examples of that, I'll, I'll give just a, a small example. Oftentimes in the, in the text, what you find is like a duplication of a line, for example. So so someone has been copying down the scriptures and they accidentally write the same line twice. And you can see how that would happen if you've you know you, as we're reading books this happens this happens to me as I'm reading that I will I will read a line and then when I go back to the other side of the page I actually start on the same line again. I don't know my mind just isn't working right then. Or if I, if I put a book down and I'm, I'm not reading it at that moment and I pick it back up, maybe I don't recall where I started and so I'm starting at the, the beginning of a paragraph that I've already read. And then it kind of clicks in like, oh yeah, I read this part. When you're copying things by hand, there's no, there's no erasers. There, there's no delete buttons. There's no spell checks. There's, there's none of those things. So people are literally having to write these things by hand and, and mistakes happen. Clerical, error, clerical errors occur. So then we end up with these group of texts that when compared, they're, they're different. And these texts are what's ultimately used to produce what we have as terms of transla- in terms of translation. Now this, if, if you're thinking about this, kind of gets the wheel spinning a little bit to say, well, then how can I, re- then how can I believe that this is reliable? If, there's, if the copies we have, we don't have the originals, we don't have what Mark actually wrote, that's, that's gone. How can I trust that this is actually legitimate, that this is reliable, that it's trustworthy? I'll say a couple things to that. The Alexandrian text and the majority text, they agree over 98 percent of the time. So they, they are in lockstep agreement well over the majority of the time. in addition to that, where there are differences, they're very insignificant. Rarely is there a significant passage like we're going to look at in Mark sixteen, where there's huge chunks of scripture that are just uncertain about. It's usually the the addition of a word like the, where the Alexandrian didn't have it, but the majority did, or it's it's things like the Alexandrian text. If you looked at a verse, says Jesus Christ. The majority text, when you look at it, says Lord Jesus Christ. They 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 add, somebody came along and added this word to to emphasize the lordship of Jesus. So, so there's really, these differences are very minor. And the other important thing to note, there are no doctrines of scripture that are impacted by this. There's not a single doctrine of scripture that, that is denied by one set of texts that is affirmed by another. So it's not as though you read the Alexandrian text and it says, Jesus isn't God. Then you read the majority text and it says, Jesus is God. That, that's not the case. Jesus rose from the dead in both texts. So we can have utmost confidence that what we're reading in the Bible is actually God's word. It's actually there for us. As, as people have spent their entire lives digging into this comparing text and realizing there is so much continuity between all of these manuscripts. And we don't lose anything really. And so what people have done over the years is to determine which text is right. Ultimately, they, they carefully compared these texts, and, and they usually place more weight. They place more value on earlier texts. They place more value on the Alexandrian text, the ones written from 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. And it, and it makes sense when you think about it. Like if, if I were to handwrite a letter right now, and I, I passed it to Chris and Chris copied it, and he passed it to Eddie, and Eddie copied it, and he passed it to Shalice, and Shalice copied it, and she passed it to someone else, and we just went around the room. There's going to be variations within that letter. There's going to be differences that occur, so that the last person who writes it, if they were to compare it to mine, there's probably going to be things that are off. And when you're thinking about, okay, so which which one is right then, which copy is right you're probably going to start with the very first one or as close to the first one as you can get. You're going to start as close as you can to the original. You're not going to take the 50th person's copy and say, we're just going to rely on this when we have the first person's copy because you're going to anticipate errors creeping into the copies. And I think as a general rule, it's the right rule, people have come along and said, the earlier texts are better. I, I do want to touch on one other thing. This is just a quick timeline. Sorry, I should have probably showed this earlier. But just gives you an idea of kind of where all of the, the texts fit in, where these manuscripts fit in. And, and, and there's one other thing I want to touch on before we get to Mark. Like, what does all of this have to do with Mark 16? People will use all of these differences within the text and say, well, see, it proves the Bible's not legitimate. It, it shows that the Bible has flaws. It shows that the Bible has errors and that it can't be trusted. So, so they'll cast doubt on the Bible and they'll say that the Bible is not true. And this, this is really important for us because if we're Christians, if, if we've trusted in Christ, this scripture is, the way we, is what we live our lives based on. We, we live our lives now based on what this book says. And so if we can't trust it, How can we live according to it? But even even greater than that, and, and far greater than that, eternity hangs on the truthfulness of this. It's not just what we do now. It's not just the way we live now that relies on the authority of this text. It's where we go when we're gone. If we get this wrong, if this isn't right, and Jesus never lived, he never died, he never rose again, our faith is meaningless. Paul tells us that. But fortunately for us, the, the story of redemptive history, that, that man fell, that, that, that man sinned, and God chose for himself a people, and through that people, the whole world would be blessed. Would be blessed through a king, and all of that is fulfilled in Jesus, so that when he would die, go to a cross, die for our sins, rise again, and conquer death. We we can believe that that is true, that this king is reigning forever, that he has come in grace and truth. And so now if we trust that, if we believe and are confident in the word of God and believe and trust in Christ, we can stand before God with no condemnation. We can stand before God as, as a holy people, Peter calls it, a holy people set apart for God. And scripture affirms this beautifully. So that scripture is, is entirely true. You say, well, I'm still kind of thinking about all of these different things. I, I think we want to look at two different, two different reasons why we can have confidence in the Bible. Ultimately, two different reasons. We can have confidence that the biblical story of redemption, that, that man fell into sin, that God through his sovereignty and his providence has produced someone who could conquer death and conquer sin on our behalf so that when we trust in him, we're no longer condemned. We can believe that that is true for two different reasons. Um, first, let, let's take a deeper look into the text. We're going to get to the bottom part um, in a little bit. I already mentioned there, there's about 5,800 copies of the Bible um, from as early as the 100, 125 AD all the way through the 17th century. So there's been incredible care. There's been incredible effort put into preserving what really people determined to be valuable. These were people saying, this is valuable text. There, there are writings from other biblical authors that we're kind of loosely aware of, like a third epistle to the Corinthians, that we don't have. And it's interesting that that, that, didn't, that didn't preserve, that didn't stay to, made, to be put into our scriptures. And I think there's a reason for that. And people, people saw what was valuable. People saw what was important and precious, the very words of God, and so they sought to preserve it. This wasn't a light task. It was important work. It was challenging work. And so as you can see, we, we have text. The date of the, the date of scriptures is probably around 95 AD. We have a text from 30 years, just 30 years after that. Somebody, somebody discovered that text. And let's compare that a little bit with other ancient texts. You can see there, Socrates. Um, I was joking with Chris earlier that I was going to make a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure reference. And that's coming now. So if you're familiar with the movie, they call Socrates Socrates. Um, so I will probably refer to him as Socrates moving forward. Um, if you haven't seen it, if you're like, I don't watch 80s movies, you should watch it because it's hilarious. Um, and it kind of kickstarts the Keanu Reeves uh, career. So we wouldn't have, like, Speed and The Matrix and all these other things without Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So go watch it. I, don't, I can't recommend, like... The, the sequels to it because they're probably terrible but the first one's excellent um, so Socrates lived about 400 years before Christ um, some of his disciples because he actually didn't believe in writing things down he, he was averse to writing down his teachings so some of his disciples namely Plato wrote some of his documents that we have today there are about 17 copies of, of his teachings no originals the earliest date of his writings is 900 A.D. He was writing in about 400 years before Jesus, or he was, he was living about 400 years before Jesus. He died 399 BC, I believe. So these writings from 400 years before Jesus, we have 17 copies of them. The earliest one is, nine, is about 1,300 years after he was alive. Plato, the disciple of, of Socrates. We have 210 manuscripts about 1,200 years after after his, he was writing. If we move to historical works, those are philosophical works. If we move to historical works, Caesar wrote a first-hand account of the Gaelic Wars, 50 to 58 BC. So just a little before Jesus and his time. We have about 250 manuscripts. Earliest one's about 1,000 years after. Probably the most famous ancient text is Homer's Iliad. It contains the story of the Trojan War. Some of you may have had to read it at some point in time within... High school or college We have about 1800 copies of this I think that's a lot, that is a lot They're all dating from about The earliest date is about 400 years After it was written And that's only just a, a couple fragments of it The actual whole of it We don't have until the ninth century He was writing eight, He was writing around the time of Isaiah Is when this man was alive Writing this work So we're talking 800 years before Christ He was writing Compare all of these. Compare what's, what's referenced here in this bottom section with what we have with Scripture. Compare what the Bible says, thousands upon thousands of manuscripts from as early as 30 years after the New Testament was written. No one questions the validity of those. No one questions the authenticity of Socrates and Plato and all these other people. So how can we question the authenticity, just by looking at this, how can we question the authenticity of Scripture? when we have overwhelming mountains of evidence to suggest that what we have is accurate and true and that the Bible has integrity, it shows me, it shows us that more people were concerned with preserving one of these than preserving all of these others combined. More people were concerned about making sure that the New Testament, 5,800 copies available today, were available for people for all generations than whether or not Plato was available for all generations. And this is just the New Testament. You look at Old Testament, there's about 25,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. You have countless, and I mean, that was written centuries before Christ was even around. You're talking documents that are thousands and thousands of years old that have been preserved for us. 25,000 of them just in the Old Testament alone. And it's appropriate and it's good for us to see this, this mountain of New Testament manuscripts, this evidence, the continuity between the manuscripts, the fact that they agree as much as they do, and simply be amazed. Simply be amazed that we have the scriptures that we have today. Like I said, if, if we lived 700 years ago, we don't have this. We don't have scriptures that we can read. We have to go to a priest for that. We don't have scriptures that we can pick up on a daily basis and just learn about who God is and learn about what he's done for us. It should amaze us that we have the Bible in our hands today. Thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, thousands upon thousands of hours poured into preserving this text. So that's the art and the science of textual criticism. We scratched the surface. There's a whole lot more there. Read the books if you want to know more. The fact that God's word has survived for centuries, I believe is a testament ultimately to God's divine intervention in this. He has made sure that his word will last. And and that's the significant part. I mentioned this earlier. The reason we have confidence that this is true is not simply because there are 5,800 manuscripts and there is mountains of evidence, and they are 30 years after the time of the writing of the Bible. The fact that we can have confidence in the Bible is because there is a God behind the scriptures that has ensured that it would be available for us. It's not reasonable to believe of God that, that he would inspire prophets and apostles and people to write his words down, and then for them to hand those words off to fallible men, and God would have won no part of making sure that was preserved, it's not reasonable to assume of God, and, and that's not to say the copies, these manuscripts. It's not to say they're perfect. I don't believe they're perfect. You can find differences in them, but it is to say that God behind the Scripture has ensured that preservation has happened, that the Bible would be intact for us. So the reason we have a the reason we can have confidence. That the Bible we read, the Bible that's on our lap, the Bible that's on our phones, that we read online, the reason we can have confidence that it is accurate is because of the mountains of evidence we've just looked at, as well as a sovereign God who's preserved it. And so when we take a step back from it for a moment, and we we think about what all of this looks like, again, I can't help but just be amazed. Just be amazed that this has happened. And and it points ultimately to, I think, one thing. Not just the sovereign preservation of God. Because he's he's working all things out for his good and for his will. For our good and for his will. It's just a testament to his faithfulness. It's a testament to his reliability. That what he said he would do in providing a word for his people, he has done. You know, it, it extends his faithfulness extends far beyond just the preservation of his word. That's what we're looking at this evening. But but as an aside, I have been incredibly and personally encouraged the last week and a half at God's faithfulness in the life of the And I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't know you were going to be here. I don't want to embarrass you. But it has been incredible to me to see God's faithfulness in sparing Ty's life, in helping him to to heal and get better, and as doctors work on him, he God has answered prayers. He's continuing to answer prayers. He has shown Himself faithful, and and it's equally encouraging to see God's faithfulness is tangibly displayed through all of you. It it is incredible to me to see the especially the women of the church who have. In a very short order, quickly sought to reach out, organize, and see how they can help. Whether it's with food, whether it's with watching, watching Josh and Mike, whether it's with, with just being there to, to talk with Micah. I mean, the amount of people and the, the amount of engagement that's been there has just been so incredible to me, just so encouraging to me. That God has said, I will take care of my children... And he's using his church to do it. It's just so incredible because it it pictures what God wants for us. It pictures what his word says, that his desire for his church is to do that. So to see God's faithfulness just physically, tangibly evident has has just been super encouraging to see. It's it's equally encouraging. And again, sorry, Meg, I'm not trying to pick on you it's been equally encouraging to hear a video of her say to her husband who's laying in a hospital bed, God loves you. The Bible says that, that when, we are, when we are in him, when we become united with Christ, he will perform in us a work and he will complete it. Even through the most difficult of times, he will be faithful to mature us in our faith. And to see Micah sit there with her husband and say God loves you even in the immense anguish and heartache and pain that she's in is a testament to God's faithfulness and grace in her life to mature her faith. Amen. How awesome is that? That God is faithful to do it. I've been encouraged too by those who have recently started coming to Eternal City Church. A few months ago we began to pray that, that God would bring and unite and partner to our church five people to join in membership. And it feels like ever since we started praying for that a few months ago, all of a sudden, like, new people are coming. And, and they're, they're like, hey, I want to join the church. And they're, they're, they're saying that to us. We're not even asking. We're not like, hey, do you want to join? They're like, no, let, where's, the, where's the material I want to start? How encouraging is that? That God in his faithfulness is answering prayers there as well. So if you've been coming recently and you're like, hey, I, I want to join the church, you are direct answers to, to prayers of this church. And God has been faithful to do it. So God is faithful to preserve his word. And that should just be the foundation, the fact that God is faithful for all of the other promises that are in the scriptures. Paul says in, in Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises that God has made, he is faithful to deliver on them. He will care for us. He will provide for us. He will always be there. He will grow us even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of trial. Even when we we think we're losing, God is saying, no, 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 I've got you. Even when we think we're falling, God's got us. How faithful is he as, as God? So that was about 35 minutes on textual criticism and we haven't even touched Mark 16. Um, so we'll, we'll get through this quickly. Um, how does this all interact with the end of Mark 16? How, do, how does this all fit? Um, I, I want to lay out from the beginning, like I mentioned, I do not believe verses 9 through 20 are part of Scripture. I don't believe they are original to Mark. A um, few reasons I have them here. The older manuscripts, just, just, they simply just don't support the reading of Mark 16, 9 through 20. The, the manuscripts from the second, third, and fourth century, that Alexandrian text we talked about, they don't contain this ending. There, there is kind of, you can find some writings around the third or fourth century, they're saying, the end of Mark's kind of strange, and they're writing it in like Greek and way more fancy than I put it. They're like, the, the end of Mark's kind of different. Something seems off. And even early church fathers at that time, so we're talking disciples of the apostles, like the men who led the church through the second and third and fourth centuries, they're coming along and saying, no, every, every manuscript we have matches that verse 8's the end. So even they're affirming this. So external evidence, the manuscripts, the writings from that time, all point to the fact that Mark ended his gospel at verse 8. Verses 9 through 20 are not part of the actual gospel. We'll, we'll transition a little bit to internal evidence. So, so, evidence from the text. If you look at verse nine, specifically, it says, "Now, when we rose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons." The transition is just awkward. The transition is just strange. You would think by him using this word "now," you would you would kind of build on what we've seen in verse eight, but instead, he re, he reintroduces Mary who's already been part of the story for multiple chapters. She's been involved in this. It it would be so strange for a writer, especially during this time, to come along at the last few verses of of the gospel and say, oh, by the way, this Mary I've been talking about, that's Mary Magdalene, and, and this is what's going on about her. They wouldn't reintroduce people at this stage. They're not going to do that. The only time we really see that in scripture is Paul at the end of his epistles just rattling off names of people that these churches already knew. He's not reintroducing people at the end of a book. It doesn't really make sense to put that in there. Third, just a vocab. The word choice is very different. There are 18 different words used in verses 9 through 20 that are found nowhere else in the book of Mark. Verse 19 specifically, um, when, when verse 19 refers to Jesus as Lord Jesus, it's the only time in the entire Gospel of Mark that Lord is attributed to Jesus. The titles Mark uses are Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. He doesn't call Jesus Lord. That's not to deny that Jesus is Lord. He is. Mark just doesn't use the term. So why would he throw it in in the 19th verse of the last chapter? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the context in verses 9 through 20. So verse 7, Mark specifically mentions that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Then verses 9 through 20, all the appearances of Jesus happen where? Not in Galilee. They're all in Jerusalem. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. You would think if Mark was going to include stories of Jesus' appearance, it would all be stuff he was doing in Galilee since it was referenced in verse 7. But it's not. It's all things in Jerusalem. And then the last one, finally, verse 17 and 18 um, specifically talk about these, these signs, these signs of apostles, these signs of the followers of Jesus. They don't really fit Mark's theme at all. They, they also don't really fit the other accounts of the Gospels. So Matthew, Luke, and John don't really talk about these, these signs that we're going to accompany the, the followers of Jesus. It, it just doesn't really fit. And, and in addition, some of the ones referenced um, drinking deadly poison, it won't hurt them. There's, there's no record of an apostle. There's no record of anyone drinking poison and not dying from it. Um, handling the ability to handle snakes. There's only one reference in Acts 28 where Paul is actually bitten by a snake and he lives. And he wasn't like trying to play with it. He wasn't, he wasn't picking it up to like do something with it. He was building a fire and the snake came out and bit him on the hand. And he lived. So... They're just odd references that are found nowhere else in Scripture that, that can't be supported by other Scriptures. And, and kind of as an aside, if you start to delve into and think through like kind of weird, odd doctrines of things, and you can only find one verse to support it, probably an indication that you should keep looking. Um, don't, don't settle there. Because most of the time, Scripture supports itself. It's not relying on one verse in order to interpret an entire doctrine. So this begs the question, then, then, and then how did the longer ending of Mark get in? And ultimately, I think it comes down to this. the These verses were later added as an attempt to correct what copyists believed was a mistake. So they may have, they may have borrowed from other gospel stories and kind of rewrote them and tweaked them a little bit. They may have borrowed from non, non-biblical texts that talked about Jesus and his life and ministry, there may have been other texts floating around at that time. And so somebody came along and said, this doesn't seem right. We're going to add some things in. And so as they collected everything and put it together, they, they determined that they needed to add something in order to make it a bit more comfortable. So most likely this was included after the fact. And, and I think verse 8 really just seems appropriate to end the book of Mark. And we're going to jump into that a little bit. So in an effort to make this text kind of better, um, I think the the people who did this, the copyist, actually made it a little bit worse. Um, Because it it seems to fit and make sense that verse 8 ends the gospel. If you read it, we'll go to verse 8. It says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. At first glance, it's like, this is just abrupt. Like, it just ends. But it fits Mark, doesn't it? We've been looking at this for months. Mark just jumps from thing to thing. He's very abrupt. He's very succinct. He makes his point and he goes. He's not interested in adding additional words. He's very interested in just moving things along. So it kind of fits. And if we remember from chapter 1, what is Mark writing about? Mark is seeking to prove and show that the That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. So he spent chapter after chapter trying to prove that point. So each turn of the page through Mark, as we're looking through the life and the ministry of Jesus, we're just seeing more and more, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He is the King. So it's fitting then that Mark would just end his gospel with this. For they were afraid. The word used for afraid there is the word that we, that we use to get our word phobia. Kind of this like irrational fear. It's extreme irrational fear. And their fear wasn't one of like a fear of death. It wasn't one of a fear of being harmed. It was just simply amazement, astonishment, wonder. And you have to think, what did they just encounter? What did they just experience? The man who thought they thought was dead is now alive. If there's any time for irrational fear, you've just encountered something very irrational, something that can't be explained. So it fits. It also fits with what we've seen throughout the book of Mark. Mark 122: they were astonished by his teaching. 127: Jesus has just cast out a demon. They were all amazed. 2.12, after healing a paralyzed man, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 4.41, he calmed the storm. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? 5.15, a demon-possessed man is healed. They, were, they became frightened. 5.42, he raises a girl from the dead. They were completely astounded. Chapter 9 in the Transfiguration, speaking of Peter, James, and John, he says they became terrified. 1024, the disciples were amazed at his words. 1118, he cleanses the temple. Afterwards, it says they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teachings. 155, as Jesus stands before him silent, Pilate was amazed. 16.5, 16.5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were alarmed. How else would we expect Mark to end his gospel? He's been showing us this pattern since the very beginning of the book. Every point, every interaction Jesus has, they're amazed, they're amazed, they're amazed, they're afraid, they're amazed, they're astonished. Every single interaction he has throughout his entire life. So, of course, it ends with amazement. Like I mentioned, the greatest event has just happened. The greatest event in the history of mankind has just taken place, the resurrection. The king is alive. There's reason to be afraid. There's reason to be amazed. It makes total sense that these women were, were afraid because they just experienced this irrational thing. So, Mark ending his gospel is like him saying, I've made my case. I've done what I've sought out to do. I wanted to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and what better way to do that than to show the vindicated Jesus who was just raised from the dead. And the response to this Jesus is just one of awe. There's nothing left to say. You encounter Jesus and you see him for who he is, the resurrected King, and our response is simply silence. Mouth open in amazement. That's the picture Mark's putting in front of us. These women encounter something beyond explanation and and beyond words. So it's fitting that Mark would just say, it's done, I have nothing left to prove. There's nothing left to say. And it's ultimately because in the resurrection, Jesus finds vindication. Everything that Jesus has been going through through his life Everything that he's been pointing to, all the claims to godship, all the claims to kingship, find their vindication in the resurrection. He has shown himself to have the ability to heal the sick, cast out demons, control storms, and then ultimately in this, conquer death. And so through his, through his conquering of death, he has made available to us. He has given us access to God. He's made available to us access to God, and he's done it by taking on the wrath of God in our place. So then now, as, as we trust in him, he's actually advocating for us. He's not just sitting on the sidelines saying, Go get it, do it. No, he's actually standing before the Father saying, My blood paid for that sin. He is advocating on our behalf, he is on our side, not just a spectator. And the resurrection shows all of that to be true. It always makes me laugh towards the end of a football game where you know, one team's up by like 20 points, three touchdowns, four touchdowns. And you know a wide receiver catches the ball and, and a, a safety comes across and he hits him, just lays him out. And you see the safety on the losing team kind of flex. He gets up all pumped up, ready to go. You just kind of want to scream at the TV, like, look at the scoreboard, dude. Like, you're down by four touchdowns. What are you doing? Uh, I mentioned earlier that Jesus demands a response. He, he's a game changer for us. Because when we look at the scoreboard, we're not on the losing side. And you know, Jesus doesn't just put us up by three or four touchdowns. He grants us eternity. He's made available to us life and hope. And so when we experience Jesus, we see the truth of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so the end of Mark is just like, what's your response to this Jesus? How are you going to respond? Are you in all of Jesus, like these women were? Are you ambivalent to Jesus? Are you amazed at what he's done or are you just content ignoring it? If Jesus is our joy and our satisfaction in life, it means that when we feel like we're losing, when we feel like we're on the losing side, we can actually look up at the scoreboard and see, no, we're winning. Because we have God, we have Christ. And even if if it feels like we're losing out on everything else, What we're getting is so much better. It would be a beautiful thing if we collectively would be so amazed at Jesus, that we find our satisfactions and our joys and our hopes in him. And then that would lead us to sharing our joys and our satisfactions and our hopes with other people, both inside the church and outside the church. It's always impressive to me that the women went, after experiencing this, and the other Gospels attest to this, they went and they told other people. They couldn't couldn't keep it to themselves. It was too incredible, it was too amazing for them to, to contain within them. They had to say something to someone. The joy that they had because they knew the very fact that their king was alive. And maybe you are sitting here or you're watching online and you're thinking, I'm good. I see this Jesus. I see who he is. But everything's fine. I'm doing okay. Life seems all right. And so I'm just going to ignore Jesus, the Jesus that Mark has presented for us. Yeah, he's amazing, but I'm just going to ignore him. I would encourage you to check the scoreboard. Because you, you very well might be acting like that guy who makes the big hit and kind of flexes. But then when you look at the scoreboard, you realize, I'm not winning. There is not going to be a single person who stands before God under the wrath of God and says, I've actually won. Not a single person. They will stand before God and they'll be in all of him but it'll be a terrible awe. It won't be one that's filled with love and compassion and care. It'll be full of wrath. They will bow their knees to Christ, but they won't do it because they love him. That is a scary place to be, to approach the wrath of God and not have it satisfied through Christ. So my encouragement for you, repent of your sins, find forgiveness in Jesus. If you want to talk about that, come talk with me. I would love to talk with you about it. So Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, he's before us. We spent 32 weeks talking about him. His story's been told. I trust that the spirit of Mark's gospel's been captured, that Jesus is the vindicated king. He's in control of all things. My prayer, my hope for myself, my prayer, my hope for all of you, that we walk away and find him amazing. We're going to take communion now, um, and and what we're really doing is celebrating our King. Celebrating that our King is alive. Uh, We do this weekly here at Eternal City Church. Um, I hope that this doesn't become something that's routine. I hope this is not something that is just the thing that we do. Um, It is an opportunity for us as a community of people to remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Luke 19 puts it this way, that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. If we have been found, we have a a tangible, helpful reminder in what we're about to do that he has paid the price so that we could live.